the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Welcome to another edition of the Spot Track Podcast. My name is Mike Gennetti. Sunday, September 3rd, the NFL week is officially here. This will be the last Sunday until February without football. We're going to bounce around a little bit in the football world, the TJ Hawkinson extension, some early 53-man roster numbers at the back end of the show. I'm going to sneak in an early MVP and Cy Young conversation in Major League Baseball and how some of those contracts looked for the players that are expected to win those awards. And an NBA conversation about Giannis Antetokounmpo. Keith Smith has a great piece on spytrack.com detailing all the numbers, all the possibilities, all, all the scenarios. I'm going to summarize this thing for you in about eight minutes, tell you where I think it's going to happen. And by the way, tell you where I think it might happen if the Bucks are decent, bad, or really good this year. Because I think this upcoming season is going to speak volumes for Giannis's next contract and what it might look like and why it might exist, how it exists. Keith does a great job, by the way, with all of these scenarios on spytrack.com. That's next. The Major League Baseball MVP race is heating up in one league. <laughs> the American League remains off the board despite Shohei Otani's injury. He's going to hit. He's going to continue to hit. That's for another discussion, by the way. I'm not sure he needs to, as his team has clearly given up based on the waiver wire. But Otani is still such a heavy favorite in the American League to win this award that it is off the board at every major sports book. You can't even touch it, and you would never want to because I believe last I looked, it was minus 650 for Otani and the AL MVP. National League is a very different story, and it's a week-to-week kind of must-see back and forth with Ronald Acuna Jr. and Mookie Betts, two of the top four favorites heading into the season. The opening odds had Juan Soto, the betting favorite, with Mookie second, last year's winner Paul Goldschmidt third, Acuna fourth, and Nolan Arenado and Manny Machado in the mix as well. So two of the top four remain the favorites in 2023. That's um, unlikely, I would say, based on how we've seen seasons kind of go from A to Z. But right now, Acuna is the minus favorite, according to FanDuel Sportsbook, minus 185, not worth your money. Mookie Betts at plus 135. They're coming. Um, The Dodgers have been around for a while, really since the turn of the All-Star game. And the Braves have been absolutely steady and mashing. And Acuna Jr. has been doing highly real stuff, which is keeping him in the minuses right now, in my opinion. He is far and away the most exciting player consistently in this game. Other players have had moments, right? Ali De La Cruz, a few others. But he is consistently, when healthy, the most dynamic player we have in this game right now, outside of Otani, obviously, but in terms of the National League. And I think the odds favor that in terms of his marketability and what he's doing for the best team in the National League. The Dodgers are coming, though. Last point on this. The top four odds right now, according to FanDuel Sportsbook, Acuna, Betts, Freddie Freeman, Matt Olson, two players, each from two, two teams, hold down the top four odds. That's rare. You know, one of the conversations we have in football especially is if there are too many mouths to feed on one team, Generally speaking, you're not going to have one player stand out above for this kind of an award because value tends to lean towards teams that have less around a superstar, and that superstar has to put teams on their back and carry them into great things. It's not happening with Acuna, though his highlights are standing aside. Matt Olson was carrying this team through the dog days of May, June, and July for the most part, and Acuna has really turned a corner. And I'd say Betts was similar, consistently fine, consistently good, 
then really turned a corner when the rest of the team did. But to have Freeman and Betts and Acuna and Olsen all kind of linked together here is a rare scenario for a National League award like this. But it's here, and it's uh, probably not going away. I don't think anybody's going to slip into this conversation in the National League, at least late down the stretch here. You know, in the American League, you're going to have... I don't think we're going to get the situation where Otani has to be bedded into this this award. But Julio Rodriguez has certainly made every effort possible to keep that Seattle team relevant, nearing first place. And by the way, by the way getting his star back where it belongs in the spotlight. Quickly, a couple other rewards. Um, <laughs> we've seen so many Cy Young winners come from bad teams, and we're going to have another one. In fact, I think we're going to have two. If you haven't looked in a while, and I haven't at this award, um, I've just been watching baseball as I tend to do night in and night out. I, I had a feeling that Garrett Cole was going to be the favorite, and he's a heavy favorite. He's more of a favorite to win the Cy Young in the American League than Acuna Jr. is to win the National League MVP right now. He's a minus 250, according to FanDuel. With Luis Castillo, a player who the Mets beat up a little bit yesterday, easily the number two option. So you got a Yankees and a Mariners player. And again, the Yankees player is heavily favored to win. So it looks like for, you know, the seventh out of tenth straight year, we're going to have a really bad team with a starting pitcher winning the Cy Young. It's not much better in the National League. This one I did not know. I have not seen enough Padres because, quite frankly, they haven't earned my time. <laughs> Blake Snell is a minus 210 to win the National League Cy Young right now, according to FanDuel, with Spencer Strider on a great Braves team, easily the number two in, in, uh, number two odds. There's some names here. Zach Gallen, Arizona's overachieved. Justin Steele, the Cubs have overachieved. Logan Webb, the Giants have tried to hang around with him as their ace. But Blake Snell is going to win this thing. So we're going to have two non-postseason teams with Cy Young winners again. It sort of leads to the award, right? You need somebody to stand out. And generally speaking, a pitcher can be the player that can stand out even if the rest of your team is garbage. If it can't hit, can't produce, can't, def- can't defend. If all of the true analytical numbers for a starting pitcher hold up, they're going to get this kind of notoriety. And we've seen it now a lot over the past decade or so in Major League Baseball. So MVPs tend to go to to players that are on great teams, which is backwards thinking in my opinion. Cy Youngs have recently gone to players that are excelling on bad teams. And we're going to see that again in 2023. Contractually, Acuna is locked up to just a ridiculous value contract. He's locked up for at least four more seasons with tons of club options coming after that. He's a $17 million player. The Braves absolutely stole this one. They knew what they were doing. I think he knew what he was doing. He's going to get up, be able to get out of this thing in the early 30s and set some sort of sec, you know, second contract up for himself. But for now, he is just value, value, value in that Braves lineup. Mookie is not value. <laughs> Freddie Freeman is not value for those Dodgers teams. And Matt Olson signed a really nice contract to replace Freddie Freeman that, you know, overtakes the Acuna contract by quite a bit in terms of value and dollars and overall. So um, most of these Braves contracts look great on paper. Austin Riley, Matt Olson, Acuna Jr., Ozzy Albies, uh, most of the pitchers, the Strider deal, things like that. They're all right there for the taking. And they're going to add up to a perennial World Series contender. It's just how this works. The finances now meet or, un- or value 
the, the production they can put out on, a, on an annual basis. So they're set up in every regard. The Dodgers are going to have to finagle this thing every single year. You know, they're going to they're going to operate like the Warriors do in basketball a little bit where they're going to have to make one or two either decent size or, or sweeping changes just to keep the finances and all those things in order. And it, this year, that, that what that was, was one little free agent splash and then a heck of a lot of dialing it back, making some trades to get some salary off of there, not going after some, some big players in free agency, doing nothing at the deadline, essentially, and now just kind of sitting around and letting this team percolate. And here they are, back in World Series contention yet again in the National League. And oh, by the way, because they didn't do a couple of those things this year, obviously they're the favorites to land Otani next year. So they, uh, they're the kind of team that when they play their cards right and they have more cards to play than most teams, they can just continue to keep the train rolling, not unlike Golden State in, in basketball right now. So that's how the National League shakes out. If the, in the American League, it couldn't be more different. <laughs> you know, I mean, Otani's situation is... I don't know, disastrous at this point. It's everything we thought could happen to the Angels has happened to the Angels. And not only is it happening, they're admitting it out loud, as we talked about in last Thursday's show, with the waiver wire situations. Um, you know, four of those players got plucked. They were able to save themselves $5 million or so in terms of cap and, uh, tax and cash this season. So I guess they succeeded in that regard. Uh, more Less decisions they have to think about this winter, except for it's not like they can rip this Band-Aid off. When they lose Otani and they're going to lose Otani, they still have nine years of Mike Trout left, if I remember off the top of my head. They still have, I believe, four years of Anthony Rendon, who is under the same contract that Steven Strasburg just retired out of because Washington decided to pay Strasburg and not Rendon. So the Angels just matched the Strasburg contract in signing him in free agency, and it's been an absolute disaster. And there are other contracts that really they can't get out of. A, they're not tradable entities, or B, they're just too much money to take on at this point in time. So they're stuck. They're stuck for a bit unless they really, really push. And by, what I mean by that is, are they going to pay Trout's contract down to get him out and start to pile back some prospects that they didn't acquire for any kind of trade for Otani? I think it's possible right? The, the Pete Alonso trade stuff has been sort of at the forefront of the pending offseason discussions. I'm not sure why a Mike Trout one hasn't been. Because if, if this isn't a turning point now for the Angels, right, who tried at least a little bit at this deadline and in this past offseason to fortify themselves for an all-in mode for Otani and failed miserably. They, they were there for a bit, a minute, right? They had, a, they had their usual two or three month stretch where they were relevant and that fell off the cliff despite adding three or four horsemen at the, at the deadline. Why would anybody believe that they can do this at, to any capacity without Otani? Nobody should, including themselves. So their outlook now is, in my opinion, all out. They should be thinking all out at this point. So for all the Pete Alonso conversations we've had, and they're relevant, he's going to be hitting arbitration three, and that's always the time that teams have to make the decision. Mike Trout's contract is diff difficult and his injuries, two or three injuries per year, make things really ugly. I, I still think the Baltimores, the Phillies, the, the, the Padres, believe it or not, the Mariners would still be considering this contract if it's paid down slightly 
to have Mike Trout for the next five to six years minimum because of where they are in their situation versus where the Angels are, which is now back where they started. In an overbloated roster with no prospects and Mike Trout. That's what they're headed for in less than two months. That's where we're headed. So they should be doing more, not less subtracting this offseason. And that certainly starts with Shohei Otani, who is going to win another MVP on his way to free agency with a UCL tear, with all sorts of should he have surgery discussions or not, with probably not the $600 million contract we all wanted him to score, but some version of that prorated down for just a hitter maybe for a while. And then we'll all have to see if he can get back to a full-time pitcher at any point in time. But I feel like that is very much in question in terms of where his career is headed. Okay, we'll certainly be monitoring that, monitoring the postseason races. And I have already started the postseason or the off-season mode for many of these teams, started projecting arbitration salaries, 40-man rosters for, for all, all 30 league teams in this league. And uh, by the way, prepping some expansion conversations in Major League Baseball as well, because starting to hear the rumblings, it's not just the A's moving to Las Vegas, but are there two or three other cities that could become part of this conversation sooner rather than later? And what does that mean for the rest of the league? I think it's a good thing. I think it's a positive thing, financially speaking. So that's also part of this offseason discussion as we approach the winter months of baseball. Some football news in terms of the NFL and contracts. The Minnesota Vikings locked in tight end TJ Hawkinson. By the way, the third contract I would have assumed was coming. I thought they were going to get something done with Cousins. They didn't, and those two are going to free agency. I thought they'd get something done with Justin Jefferson before week one. We're uh, four days away from the Thursday opener, and Justin Jefferson still does not have his contract, but tight end TJ Hawkinson does. I like this one quite a bit. He concessed overall value, overall average salary, which you know me, I'm pushing away from that as much as possible. So he didn't become the immediate highest average paid tight end in football based on Darren Waller's 17 million. It's 16.5 for Hawkinson. However, what he did get is a three-year full guarantee. Two of them right up front here, 29.2 million, fully guaranteed at signing, and 2025 salary fully guarantees next March. That's as good as gold in this league. So it's a three-year, $41.3 million contract for now with 16 and $18 million salaries thereafter, which are probably unlikely. But if the salary cap's 270 and he's not yet 30 years old, Minnesota could easily keep him around at those values and or restructure into another, another extension at that point. So it's a really strong deal from a guarantee standpoint, which if you're a tight end, what the hell else matters? We've already made the comparison to running backs here. This is a contract that could be Josh Jacobs' contract. It could be Jonathan Taylor's contract. It's slightly north of Christian McCaffrey's overall AAV. The $30 million guaranteed at some is almost identical to what McCaffrey scored with the Panthers back in the day. And the practical guarantee of $38 million for McCaffrey is quite a bit less than what Hawkinson was able to pull in with Minnesota, right? So it's on par. Hawkinson basically signed McCaffrey's contract. And he's considered essentially the, you know, the best available tight end contract we had right now. He was the best extension contract the tight end market had. So if Jonathan Taylor is looking at this, this is the contract. This is the Hail Mary contract for him. This is the one I'm going for right now 
with the Colts or with the Dolphins or with the Packers or with all these teams that have at least showed interest, this is the one I'm starting with. And when I have to come down to 14 million a year and only 24 million guaranteed at signing or practically guaranteed at all, because that's where we are now with the running backs, he has to take it. I've said it before. I'm going to continue to say it. He has to take it. Hawkinson took this deal. Okay. It wasn't the 17 and a half million he wanted, maybe even 18 million he wanted. All right. And maybe he was looking for 45 million practically guaranteed over three years. So a true 15 million per year contract. He didn't get it. He got 41 and change. Most of that fully guaranteed. And he got three years guaranteed, the next three years of his life fully guaranteed. That's a miracle right now for the tight ends. It is it just, that's a miracle for them. And it would be a miracle for the running backs. So again, I want to make this comparison because I feel like the tight ends are doing the one thing that the running backs aren't doing, and that's taking these deals. They are concessing, compromising for these deals. If Taylor is offered a contract like this, it's got to happen. Just has to happen. Now, Jacobs can't get this offer right now. Barkley can't get this offer right now until the end of the regular season. But there's a couple more knocking down this door soon. And when we get here, Hopefully these conversations are starting to have versus let's all hold out and petition for what we used to get with Adrian Peterson and those kind of players, because those days are flat out gone. We have to compromise to what, what exists, what is available, what is offered and start to build things back up. Because if Jonathan Taylor takes 14 million a year, 24, 25 million guaranteed and outplays it, it's just going to be another version of what they can go to from a negotiating standpoint and say, look, that guy took a deal of value and outplayed it earn some incentives because of it. Let's just build in those incentives as full guarantees this time around for Bijan Robbins and for Jamar Gibbs and so and players like that. I just think we have to get there. But great deal for Hawkinson. Not the maximum deal he was looking for, but a good enough deal to get on paper and stick around with a team that's going to be in contention for this division right now. A little NBA. Our Keith Smith has a great piece on SpotTrack.com right now, just launched. Giannis Antetokounmpo's extension options. This is one that I put in his ear. It's kind of been the growing conversation in the NBA offseason outside of the trade stuff we discussed last week. But Giannis has come out and basically said, I'm not going to sign an extension this fall when I become extension eligible. I believe that's September 22nd when his restriction lifts. He's not going to do it for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's not good business, right? And I'll explain that in a second. Number two, this Milwaukee team is floundering just a little bit. There's been some subtraction. There's been some replacement. There's been, you know, some coaching stuff. There's a lot that has to come back together to kind of reclaim the, the glory that was the Milwaukee Bucks there for about 18 or 24 months. So what he's doing, and this is something superstars have now started to do more and more in the NBA. LeBron has been the king at this, no pun intended, is put pressure on the, on the front office. I'm not going to do anything early. I'm not going to do anything more than I need to until you continue to prove that you can put these pieces back together and make us an actual contender for the NBA title, not just this year, but maybe for the next two or three years so that I know I'm, I'm, I have good footing doing what I'm doing to lock myself into another five years. That's the number. Okay. So it's a five-year total contract. What we're talking about for Giannis, he has... 45 and change this year. He has 48 and change for 2024. And then there's a $52 million player option in the 2025 season. So it's not like free agency is right around the corner. All right. But we're not early either. We're not early with these conversations. Many of the superstars tack on two to three years whenever they can just to keep the money coming, keep the money coming. They max out, right? They are projected extensions. 
and it all ends up being based on the, on the salary cap when it gets to that point. So it's just to get them under contract, to make them tradable, to make them assets, to lock in fully guaranteed money. Why wouldn't you do that? Dame Lillard did that, right, when nobody thought it was going to happen. That's sort of why we are where we are right now with him. So Giannis is not going to do anything this fall, according to Giannis. And what he could do is tack on two years. He could either tack on two years with that player option or tack on three years without that player option, which would actually garner him an extra couple million dollars in new money. So that's the options that aren't going to happen, but they're there. Keith has broken down for, on, for you on spotrick.com if you want to see all these numbers in one place. Let's get to what's probably going to happen, which is an extension in 2024, something he's talked about. It's the most likely option. It's what most superstars do. They tack on three or four new years, again, based on that player option, to equal a total of five years with the next 2024 through 2028 seasons in the NBA. This is the most likely scenario. If this doesn't happen, okay, if Giannis decides it's not the right time next year, then we start to have to have some real conversations because now we're staring at a player option. Now we're staring at free agency. Now we're staring at a situation where Milwaukee probably thinks they're about to lose this guy because something has gone wrong. A coach, the coaching issue, a roster issue, an injury issue with Giannis, or just the flat, fat out that the Lakers and the Knicks and those teams have done their due diligence and they have piqued his interest enough to the point where he wants to become available. That's where we'd be next year, this time next year, if Giannis still has not extended his contract with Milwaukee. There's a world where it's four years for 270 tacked on. Okay. There's a world where it's three years for 194. There's a lot of different scenarios. Um, what could also happen? And I think Giannis would do this. And this is one of the reasons I brought the conversation up in the first place is this pressure, this front office pressure. Giannis is never going to go out there and say, our coaching staff has to be better. Our front office needs to do a better job. I don't think it's in his DNA. He is a work hard, play hard, show respect type athlete to the nth degree. But what he can do is not have to say anything and simply use the contract as a way to bully, for lack of a better term, everybody into sort of making sure they're on their best, they're on their best, they're at their best. Which means he doesn't sign this fall. He doesn't sign next year. He gets himself into a situation where he can opt in or opt out. And when he opts out, and this is sort of what the James Harden scenario was going to be, as well as many other free agents, when he opts out, now he's looking at just coming back to Milwaukee, five years, 317, okay, and replacing that player option and starting fresh in 2025. That's only two years away, right? So he plays out his 46. He plays out his 48 over the next two seasons, makes a boatload of money, opts out, signs back at five for 317, 320-ish, depending on the salary cap, obviously makes a boatload of money for his career, and finishes in Milwaukee. So it can still work out for the Bucks all the way through, even if he doesn't sign. But in waiting until 2025 with that option decision, he can put as much pressure as he can on the Bucks front office. And the only real voices that are going to be saying things out loud are knuckleheads like me and people like Keith, who know exactly what's happening here. And it's not about him trying to sign with the Knicks or going to the Lakers or hooking up with Bronny James, wherever it's going to be. You know, you know where things are going to go. 
right? It's going to be a, a media storm if he's getting to that player option without extending, but it simply could just be Giannis saying things without saying it. Make sure that you give me the best roster. I'm not going to do anything early. I'm not going to do anything up front. I'm going to make sure that every single year we're trying to do the best thing we can do. And if you don't, I'm going to opt out and walk. And then you're going to have to work out a sign and trade and it's going to get really ugly on both sides. And I'm going to make my money no matter what. And he doesn't even care about that because he's already made a boatload of it. So it's interesting because of this player, right? Who's not going to be trade me. Who's not going to be sitting in front of a microphone on Draymond Green's podcast saying, these are all the reasons I don't want to be in Milwaukee anymore. That's not what's going to happen. Okay. It's going to be quick, dirty, quiet, and respectful. And he can use his contract option as a way to get exactly what he wants. My guess is exactly what he wants is to stay in Milwaukee for the next seven years. But he wants to make sure he's going to be on a winning team to do so. So things have to go very well for Milwaukee this year, in my opinion. He's not going to sign this fall. If they're a top two, top three team in the West, excuse me, in the East, we'll be right back where we belong. All right. Philadelphia is probably sliding back a little bit. Who knows what's going to happen with Miami over the next couple of weeks here with the Dame situation. The Knicks could be in contention. I think the Nets are going to fall out of favor here. Chicago is kind of in like a last hurrah season with their group, and then they may completely gut that thing. So there's not a lot of great teams. Obviously, Boston's well up in this conversation, but Milwaukee should be in this conversation for all intents and purposes is, is my point. So as long as things go well, he probably signs the extension next year, 2024, puts all this to bed, and we never have to talk about it again for another four years. But if not, if there's some discord or some rockiness, or if they're a six seed just kind of sneaking in, I wouldn't be surprised if this exact conversation I'm having, maybe with Keith out loud, is all he has to do is do nothing to say everything. And that's what really good superstars have, have come to do with this league, with this guaranteed scenario, with these early extensions, and with the power of a player option that can lead to free agency at any point in time for that superstar player. That's why the NBA is king, because there are so many decisions that the player can make. And one of them could simply be, I'm going to do nothing and let this thing ride. And there's really nothing you can do about it. Because uh, if at some point you say you're going to trade me, even then, you're going to sit down with me and work out the best possible trade for both of us. And outside of the Dame situation, everybody has caved on that. So it's all Giannis here for the next two, two, three years, unless he signs that early extension. And out of his words, out of his mouth, it's not going to happen this fall. And last but not least, back to the NFL with some nerdy numbers to finish you off here on a Sunday. Uh, I tweeted some things out when the initial 53-man rosters hit. I want to walk through some of those numbers as they appear today. For those of you who follow this stuff closely, we are still in top 51 salary cap mode until week one starts. Every team has done a phenomenal job of getting themselves ready for total cap mode. A uh, couple teams still in the negatives, according to our numbers right now. Kansas City, some work to do. Hey, how about a Chris Jones extension? Tampa Bay, still a little bit of work to do. I think they're just going to do some quick finagling on that. And the Vegas Raiders are carrying an extra roster spot right now because of Josh Jacobs' exception. So they'll have no trouble clearing things out here when they have to and getting themselves into a fine situation. The Bills, just, just in the black right now in terms of overall cap space, you have to think there's a maneuver coming here or there for them at some point in time down the stretch because you want to have a little bit of breathing room for incentives and things like that as you head towards the regular season. 
But again, there's about a week left here for all teams to get compliant. And uh, they all will. Nobody ever screws this up. So while we are our projections and predictions on our website, the real numbers will all come out here soon. And we'll have a uh, final roster, initial week 153 set here in terms of injuries and things like that, heading towards our Thursday opener. Age of these 53-man rosters. The Jets are the oldest. Shocker, right? <laughs> Guess what? When Tampa Bay had Tom Brady, the Buccaneers were the oldest. So one or two names can really sway things, and that's what the Randall Cobbs and the Aaron Rodgers can do for you, and they have. It's the Jets and the Saints over age 27 on average. Everybody else is under that. Most are in the 26s. The league average for the 53-man roster is 263 that's basically where the Vikings live right now. They're your balanced roster. The youngest team in football is the Packers, followed by the Rams and the Colts. And that with the Rams situation, that is with Matthew Stafford on this active roster and Aaron Donald and, and Cooper Cup, who are up there a little bit. So they have offset with a boatload of youth. youth. I believe there's 20 UDFAs in that roster right now. And I think they're going to stick for week one. So it's been a complete 180. <laughs> for the Los Angeles Rams, who I don't think are going to be as bad as people think if you're putting some money down. Speaking of Green Bay, the youngest team in football, I don't think they're sustainable, but they're going to win some ball games. That's the way I see that roster right now. Um, balance, something we talk about quite a bit. Which teams, in terms of active salary cap and active salary, are sitting sort of in the middle? If I told you right now, that I've got a line where the league average sits and the team just above the line is San Francisco and the team just below the line is Kansas City, <laughs> which means those two teams sit at the middle point of, of salary cap spending in 2023, which is a mark that has trended very well for Super Bowl contenders in the past. Would you, would you balk at the idea of the 49ers and Chiefs being in the Super Bowl? I bet you wouldn't. I bet a lot of people would say, oh, that sounds like it could definitely happen. I'd agree with you. Um, the Lions are there. The Patriots and the Titans are there. Now we're getting a little crazy, right? Who's at the bottom of this cap list right now? If I gave you four guesses, would you, would you guess the Cardinals every time? You should, because they are down there. But the Rams are with them, and the Buccaneers are right with them as well. And if the Buccaneers decide to trade Mike Evans at any point in time over the next two months, something very realistic based on his inability to sign an extension now, they're going to be down there. They're going to be one of the lowest cap teams and lowest salaried teams in all of football, giving Arizona a run for their money. So we're in a situation now where, you know, there's been a lot of turnover in Green Bay and Tampa and the Rams and certainly in Arizona here with the last couple of years. Those are your bottom four. And that's who's pulling up the rear. And at the top of the game is the Chargers with 2-11 in cap heading into the season. The Bills right behind him. Very similar roster breakdowns. Then we get the Steelers and the Ravens. One with a rookie quarterback. The only top five team in terms of salary cap with a rookie quarterback who have fortified their defensive line, their secondary, and their offensive line elsewhere. Baltimore's fourth. The Raiders are fifth. Those are your five teams at 200 or more in salary cap allocation for 2023. Chargers, Bills, Steelers, Ravens, Raiders. And again, it's Arizona, the Rams, the Bucks, the Packers, and the Panthers at the bottom of that list. Dead cap winners. Something I love. We're not done. We've got another week here to accumulate offseason dead cap, but it is the Buccaneers, a team that 
before the Brady stuff, never had more than a million dollars of dead cap ever, 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 ever. They didn't use signing bonuses. They structured themselves to never have dead cap. They thought it was the absolute kryptonite to an NFL salary, salary business. And now they lead the league with almost 77 million of dead cap, half of which goes to Brady's de- uh, voided years. So they're handedly at the top. The Rams are handedly in second place at 72 and change based on all their moves, including Bobby Wagner's void years and, and players like that. The Packers are third at 58 million, 40 million of which belongs to Aaron Rodgers. So that was a singular situation that's, that put Green Bay in the top three. The Eagles are fourth. Why? Because they let things expire and then re-sign players. So they accumulate dead cap and then add on active cap to it simultaneously. It's, a, it's just a machine that they continue to motorize and it's working. All right. And it's going to work with Jalen Hurts and it's going to work with A.J. Brown and it's going to work with much of the offensive line. They've been doing this with Lane Johnson and Fletcher Cox and those players for a lot of years. So it's simply just a they're happy to have dead cap and they're happy to have active cap basically at the exact same time. Philadelphia currently sits 25th in active cap and third in, and fourth in dead cap. So this is one of those years where they're able to, to drop a little bit active wise because of Jalen Hurts rookie, you know, essentially rookie season on this on this new deal. And they're able to take on more dead cap for some of the defensive players they had to turn over this past offseason. So they're going to work back and forth. It's not unlike the Dodgers conversation I just had, right? Where they pick their years, they pick their spots where they're going to go high in offseason spending and low in retained money. This is one of those years where the Philadelphia Eagles are going high in retained dead cap and a little bit lower on their active roster. And they can finagle that however they want, right? With cap conversions that moves cap in the next year and next year their, their, their active cap is probably going to look a lot higher, maybe top 15, more than, more than half of the league. So they do a very good job of doing, of staggering their process and they are not afraid to take on dead cap and they've never been afraid. Not since 2010, when this whole rookie wage scale started, they realized that that kind of value was going to exist with 30% of the roster. So because they have 30% of the roster tied up to this wage scale, they can finagle veterans as much as they want. They can move cap, they can maneuver, they can take on risks, they can cover mistakes up on the fly. They don't have to rip everything off, and they never have. They simply never have. Not even when Carson Wentz busted out, not when Nick Foles busted out. And now that Jalen Hurts is on his big contract, they're not going to have to maneuver as much as other teams think they do. They simply just go and clean up mistakes on the fly, pull back a little bit, and, and use some restructures to make sure this year balances out for them. That's exactly what's happening. So I, this, is the, this is the reason Howie Roseman gets the credit he gets. And for all those people that say, how can they continue to do this, right? When they acquire Jonathan Taylor on Halloween, it's just a hypothetical. But when they do, just understand that they're, they're 25th in active cap right now. That's why they can do this. They have, they have made this a dead cap year. So their active roster spending is a little bit less. So they're going to have room to give up a draft pick for a player whoever that might be. Maybe it's Mike Evans because A.J. Brown got injured in week four. You never know. But it's staggering, it's maneuvering, and it's the, it's the trust in the process of we never have to go all the way up or all the way down. If we stay in the middle with all of our metrics, again, that middle ground, that median, that's where you want to be living. And it's okay to have mistakes. It's okay to cover up those mistakes on the fly. Carolina, $54 million a dead cap. That's McCaffrey. That's, a, that's Robbie Anderson. That's a bunch of players that they've had to turn over 
in order to prepare themselves for a rookie quarterback Bryce Young's regime, which is officially here. Okay. A little bit around the sports world in terms of financials this week. We'll be back with Brandon Kravitz on Thursday with plenty to get to, including the start of the NFL season. I think we'll go through some specific rosters, some positional breakdowns, things like that. We'll have plenty to get to from an NFL recap standpoint and plenty more in the other sports on the next edition of the Spot Trade Podcast. <laughs>